following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We've worked our way through this book that has told the story of a really dark time in Israel's history, a time when their faithfulness to God was really at its weakest. Uh, and they were, they were led astray by so many forces and gods and idols of their culture. And we've talked about all the various judges that rose up during that time to deliver Israel and save them out of the hands of enemy nations that came in and conquered them. And we've started looking now at this last section of the book, which talks about some of the ordinary realities of life for Israelites during that period of a couple of hundred years, what life was like and how some of the ordinary families and clans and tribes within Israel fared over that time. Now, last week we looked at uh, Judges chapter 17 and the story of a guy called Micah who made these idols, these, these statues of silver and bowed down and worshipped them and we looked at how Micah did this without even really recognising what he was doing and the seriousness of how far he was drifting away from God. He was completely self-deceived so that he thought the blessing of God would be found in the worship of these idols. This morning we're going to continue that story into Judges 18, which carries on the story of Micah. So it's the same guy we're talking about, but it opens up the story to talk about the whole tribe of Dan. And I want to use this story this morning to talk about the whole issue of idolatry. Uh, we've touched on it during the series several times, but today I want to deal with it head on because it is a major issue not only in this chapter, but in the whole book of Judges and in the whole of the Old Testament and through to the New Testament. This really is one of the big issues in Scripture, that God's people seem to continually be led astray from worship of Him towards the worship of these created idols. So I want to look at how this works for Israel and how it can work if we're not careful in our lives today. So We'll read some verses from Judges 18. Now, I don't, want, I don't want to read the whole chapter, but we're just going to take some selected verses here to get a picture, and I'll leave you to fill in the gaps in your own time and, and, and read through the whole chapter. But Judges chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtol to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go, explore the land. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. We jump down to verse 14. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, do you know that one of these houses has an ephod? some household gods and an image overlaid with silver. Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levites at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites armed for battle stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod and the household gods, the priest said to them, what are you doing? They answered, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? 
The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you called out your men to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask? What's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some of the men may get angry and attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made and his priest and went on to Laish, against a people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. And then to verse 30. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. So it's a pretty tragic story, really. And over the course of these two chapters, you see it charts the progression of how sin can start with one person. In this case, it started with Micah's mum. And then it can ripple out to encompass a whole family, Micah's family. And then it can eventually ripple right out to encompass a whole tribe. And by the end of this chapter, you have the sorry story where the Danites, the tribe of Dan, they're in the land. They've finally taken possession of their inheritance. They've finally got the land, but they've lost God in the process. That's the point of the story, is that they've overcome and they're here, but in, in the process, they have lost their faithfulness to God, and God's nowhere to be seen in this picture. The house of God is in another part of the country. It's in Shiloh. All the time, the Danites are worshipping these idols in their part of Canaan. So this is a story of the tragic decline of a tribe within Israel, and the story of the progression of how idolatry can happen. Just look for a minute. In verse 14, the word that's used to describe these idols, these statues, or the statue that Micah and the Danites were bowing down to. In verse 14, they say, Don't you know that one of these houses has an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now, some of your translations may just say there, a graven image. An image overlaid with silver. It's only one word in Hebrew, in the original text that this was written in. It's only one word. It's the word pesel. And interestingly, it's exactly the same word that crops up in the second of the Ten Commandments. Let me just read it to you. The height and, and summary of Israel's law in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an image. It's the same word, pesel, in the form of anything, in heaven, above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So there it is right there enshrined in Israel's law. One of the great commandments that God gave to Israel is that they should not make for themselves any sort of created image, any physical representation of anything on earth or in the sky or in the waters. And that's not just because God had some kind of aversion to sculptures. It's not just because he doesn't like statues or carvings. There's nothing inherently wrong with those kinds of engravings. But the reason that God said to Israel, don't make an image of anything on earth, is because God had already made an image of himself on the earth. What was it that God created in his image? 
Us, right? God created humanity, male and female, in his image, Genesis chapter 1. He made us in his image, and he, he placed us in the temple of creation and asked that we direct our worship toward him. That's how the world was supposed to work. So God doesn't want us to create some kind of replica image, another type of representation, and make it a God that we worship. Because when we do that, when Israel did that, it not only undermines the sovereignty of God as the one true object of our worship, it also undermines our own humanity as the image of God, the one true image of God. We set up other images. We're taking away from the dignity and the glory and the honor that God has bestowed on us. And even though that commandment is crystal clear in Scripture, you just see time and time again, not least in the book of Judges, how Israel negated this commandment and they went off running after all kinds of gods. It's a consistent problem that ripples through the Old Testament story and into the New Testament church as well. Now, it's easy to assume that idolatry is just uh, an ancient problem. It's just this issue that, that affected ancient primitive tribal cultures and it doesn't really affect 21st century life today. After all, Israel was in this highly religious context where there's a lot of gods. Everyone acknowledges that these gods exist and there's a plethora of gods to choose from. But here we are today, 21st century Western world, and we're in a context of secularism. And a secular culture doesn't acknowledge, at least publicly, doesn't acknowledge any gods at all. So you could argue that in secular contexts, idolatry is impossible because there are no gods that are acknowledged beyond what you can see and touch and perceive with your senses. There are no, no other gods, and therefore idolatry can't exist in a secular context. But I would say that, in fact, the opposite is true, that where you have a secular culture, idolatry doesn't disappear. It is proliferated. Because wherever you have a secular culture, there's another force at work a companion force. And sociologists call this sacralization. And it simply means taking natural things, physical things in our world, and elevating them to godlike status. So sacralization means in a secular culture, you don't have to acknowledge any gods. You don't have to acknowledge any kind of transcendent being at all, and you can still be thoroughly religious because you take these natural things and you invest them with divine status and divine meaning. So you can, you can be a, a, a raving atheist like Richard Dawkins and still engage in the process of sacralization through making science itself into a type of savior. It's highly religious language, and it elevates created things to being God-like things. Even the way we talk about nature or the way we talk about the human self can blur the distinction, that critical distinction between creator and creature. And we start raising up created things and we start giving them greater power, greater authority, greater dignity than they really have. That's sacralization. And what that tells me that sacralization is so prolific in a secular context tells me that as human beings, we are wired to worship. It's just fundamental to who we are. You can put us in a secular context where society doesn't acknowledge any gods at all. We will still find ways to worship because as human beings, we cannot not worship. I'm not talking about whether or not you enjoy singing songs in church. We just can't not worship. It's, it's basic to our humanity. We are, at our core, desiring creatures. 
with these affections and devotion and desire that's always going to find some object. It's always going to attach our, our love to something. We are loving beings. And, and there are many things we can love. Many people we can love. Many things in life we can love to different degrees. But our hearts will find ultimate objects of love. They will find ultimate objects of desire, objects of affection, and those things are what we worship. And if those things are not the one true God, then they are idols. If our hearts desire some created thing more than they desire God, that thing, that person, that process, that phenomena, whatever it is, that has become an idol to us. Idols are not necessarily just physical things that you can see and touch and feel. They take form in all kinds of intangible ways in our lives. Even just everyday activities can border into the idolatrous. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, James Smith describes this, this everyday practice that we have going to the shopping mall, just a visit to Westfield. But he describes it in a way that has this heavy religious spiritual language to it to help us see how even the common practice of shopping can become a worship experience. Here's what he says. After time spent focused and searching in what the faithful call the racks, with our newfound holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar, which is the consummation of worship. Behind the altar is the priest who presides over the consummating transaction. And so we make our sacrifice, leave our donation, but in return receive something with solidity that is wrapped in the colors and symbols of the saints and the season. <laughs> That's just a visit to the shopping mall. So he's, he's not saying that every time you go to Westfield, you're an idolater, by the way, if you're, if you're wondering. It's not that every act of shopping is idolatrous, but he's saying we need to realize how even these everyday practices are spiritual. That's the point. There really are no secular practices. Everything we do, because we're spiritual beings, so everything we do, even shopping, we're engaging in those activities with all of who we are, with our heart, with our mind, with our soul, with everything. We bring it all when we, when we go shopping, when we do anything, go to the sports stadium, go to the university. We bring our whole selves. And because we're spiritual beings, our hearts are always looking for things to worship, always looking for things to leech onto and, and draw life from and direct our desire towards. And we will find them wherever we can. And sometimes these practices have a way of getting under our skin, getting into our heart, getting into our gut, even without us realizing what is going on. And they can easily become idols. It, it's not even necessarily that the thing you're buying is the idol. It may just be the process of shopping. The very pro, you know what I mean, the process of being a consumer. It's the searching. It's the comparing. It's the scanning the racks, it's the researching, it's the window shopping, that process, it's the pursuit of the purchase, that in itself can be the object of our heart's greatest desire. That can be our greatest love, what we love the most, what our heart is drawn to above all things. And if we're not careful, that can displace God at the center of our lives and it can become an idol. It doesn't have to, but it can. Idols can take all kinds of forms. And I think some of the most dangerous ones are things that in themselves are really good. Idols are not just, you know, gambling or smoking. Idols can be things that are important and necessary, but then they cross a line and they become objects of worship. So your own physical health and well-being can become an idol. Of course we should look after our body. 
Of course we should care about what we put into our body. Of course we can care about our physical appearance and presentation. But I think it's precisely because we can and should care about those things that we feel justified in giving more and more of ourselves to them. More and more of ourselves to those things and processes until they become idols in our life. Going to the gym, working out, bodybuilding, running, all of those things can become idols if they are the object of our greatest affection, if they are what our heart is desiring more than anything else. This healthy concern that we have with what we put into our bodies and what we nourish ourselves with, it can cross a line, it can become an obsession, it can become a compulsion, it can become this subtle form of mania, this excessive focus. And it's an all-consuming reality. It becomes the defining center in our life rather than Christ being the center. And our own obsession with image, with presentation, with body image, with weight, with whatever it is, we can start, if we're not careful, worshiping the body rather than the God who gave us the body. And you don't even have to like your body to worship it. It's just simply what you desire or a picture of your body and this, this desire for, for greater health or better body image, whatever it is, that can become the great object of worship in your life rather than worshiping the God who created your body. And sometimes these idols, they're not even things you can see. They're just these intangible forces and realities in our lives. You can be addicted to ambition. Of course it's good to want to succeed. Of course we want to produce and we want to be efficient and we want to be productive. But that personal desire for career success can just get a hold in our hearts and it can become a compulsion. It can become an idol. When we desire this career path more than we desire the narrow road of discipleship, it can be an idol to us. We can, we can even make the approval of other people into an idol. Usually arises out of an insecurity, but we need that person's approval. We need to be liked. We need to be respected. The idea of not being approved of or accepted by other people is catastrophic. And we end up worshipping the approval of other people. Our heart needs that more than it needs God. We can even worship ideas, a particular political ideology. doesn't matter if you're a lefty or a righty. Political ideologies can become this consuming focus in our lives. A particular philosophy, a particular psychology, a particular theology, all of these things, they can become the reality, the defining center in our lives. And we start seeing everything else through the lens of those ideas rather than seeing those things through the lens of Christ. They become the center rather than orbiting around the center, which is Jesus. This is just scratching the surface of what idols can be. We could just go on and on and on naming the idols of our culture, naming the idols in our lives. I don't know whether any of these are connecting with you. There may be other things in your life. They can be very hard to see. They can be very hard to identify. But John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. We are endlessly creative and resourceful at producing idols and making things into idols that we then bow down and worship. But I really don't want this just to be a big beat-up session, to guilt trip everybody and, and, and send you all home feeling worse about yourself than when you came in. The gospel's a message of hope, right? 
And Christ has come to unmask these idols in our lives. Christ has come and he's proved himself to be the one true living God. The one, Because the thing about idols is they really ultimately have no power. They have no life. They have no ability. They cannot do anything for you. And Christ has come to demonstrate he's the one God who can do something. He's the one God in whom salvation really is found. And through his death and his resurrection, Jesus exposed the idols in our world. And he unmasked them. He showed them up for what they really are, completely incompetent of delivering any sort of salvation to us, delivering any kind of redemption in our lives. And he proved himself to be the one true God. And now Christ himself fills us with his strength and his power so that we can look around our lives and start to identify what the idols are and deal with them. Because just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're exempt from this, doesn't mean it's not an issue. We can have the Holy Spirit in our lives and still be easily seduced by the power of idols. That's why the Apostle John, when he wrote his, his letter, one of his, his letters, his first one in the New Testament, he ends it with these sobering words. He says, Dear children, keep yourselves free from idols. It's the last line in 1 John. We've got to be vigilant about uncovering and unmasking and dealing to the idols that present themselves in our lives. It's hard even knowing what they are sometimes, isn't it? Hard even figuring out what, what idols are and, and when something has crossed that line from being healthy over to becoming an idol. I think there's a couple of ways that we can try to recognize what they are and try to identify idols in our lives. One is simply by what we are giving to them. You look at what Micah and the tribe of Dan gave to these idols. They gave a lot of money. Micah gave 13 kgs of his mum's silver to having this idol made. They gave a lot of time, the time that it would have taken to construct the idol, all the time involved in the worship practices. They gave a lot of their energy, the tribe of Dan, the energy it took to go and steal the idols and then threaten war against Micah and his family. Time, energy, money. They're probably the same kinds of things, aren't they? That we tend to give to our idols today. If we look at where our time and energy and money is going most, it's probably a sign that something may be bordering on being an idol in our lives, if it's not the one true God. We can mention the obvious example, which starts with face and ends with book. And I'm on Facebook, so I've got nothing inherently against it. But just purely in terms of time given, energy expended, in Facebook, you'd have to say for some people this is an issue, right? None of us, of course, but for some people it may just be an issue. And it's just got this addictive property, doesn't it, Facebook? It's just somehow, I don't know how it is, but you just constantly feel this compulsion to log in and see if someone else has put up some mundane piece of trivia about their life, change their profile picture, put another post up, showing me what they've got for dinner, whatever it is. Actually, one of my friends put up something great the other day on Facebook. She said, remember the days before Facebook and Instagram and Twitter when you had to go out for dinner and take your old camera and take photos of what you had for dinner and then go and get the film developed and get photocopies and take them around to all of your friends and show them what you had for dinner? No, neither do I. Stop it. I thought that was quite good. Facebook is fine. It's useful. It's fun. It's got its place. But... We've got to be careful because these things that we can use well and enjoy can, if we're not careful, and the amount of time that we give to them, the amount of energy that we give to them, they can cross over and become a compulsion for us. They can become something that our heart is drawn to more than God. Whatever is that greatest focus of your life, it may not be Facebook, it may be, may be something else, maybe your home renovations. 
maybe your next holiday, maybe another person, whatever you just can't stop thinking about, maybe an idol, whatever your heart is constantly restless for and, and longing for, if it's not the one true God, it may be an idol. And idols are recognized not only by what we give to them, but also by what we expect them to do for us. You look at what Micah and the tribe of Dan expected from these idols. They honestly expected that these idols would keep them safe, that they would deliver security, that they were responsible for the victory that they had in battle. And you see this with idols right throughout Scripture, that they are relied upon. One of the words that goes along with idols in the Old Testament is trust. Don't trust in idols. And people would trust in idols and these statues and engraved images for all kinds of things, for peace, for blessing, for prosperity, for the fertility of land, for the fertility of women, for all kinds of things. You would trust in these, in these statues. But we are in danger of very similar practices today in what we expect from the idols in our lives. If you honestly believe at a deep level, that having a healthy bank balance is going to bring security, peace into your life, then it may be that money is an idol to you. If you honestly believe that the approval of other people is going to give you a, a sense of self-security, it may be that the approval of other people is an idol. If you're looking to someone else in your life for your self-esteem, and you're looking for them to give you all your self-worth and tell you who you are, give you all your self-identity, and you're kind of using them to be propped up in your own self-image. It may be that person, good as they are, it may be that person has become an idol to you, and your heart is expecting them to give you your own self-identity and make you a true person. You're expecting that from this idol that you've made of them. If you're relying on your own talents and skills and abilities and gifts, to give you a sense of meaning and identity in your life. It may be that those very talents, skills, abilities, and gifts that God has given you have become something that you are worshiping. Our hearts will constantly look for things that we can turn into idols, and then we will try to derive meaning and value and identity from those things. And so, guys, this morning, I just want to simply encourage you to take a sledgehammer to your idols. Really, I mean, when you, when you see these times in the Old Testament... When Israel was really at her best and, and she returned back to God, doesn't happen much in Judges, but you see it, times like the reign of Josiah, these godly kings. And when their eyes were opened and they saw the impotence of these idols and they saw how unfaithful they'd been, you have these beautiful scenes where Israel just demolishes their idols. They don't just ignore them. They don't just go back to worshiping God over here and leaving the Baal statues set up. They just destroy, they almost take delight in completely shattering these idols and tearing them down because they know the only way that worship is going to be able to be directed back to God is if these idols are completely crushed. And I'll tell you that if there are things in your life that have become an idol to you, you cannot think that just by ignoring those things or soft peddling it around them, they're going to go away and that somehow you can just. Worship God over here in this other space. We need to take a hammer to our idols. We've got to be prepared to destroy them. And it starts by just naming them. It starts by naming them honestly to God and allowing God to search our heart and examine our conscience and see if there are things in our life, 
Maybe good things, maybe healthy things, but we've made them God things. And they've become objects of worship and they're what our hearts desire more than anything else. You've got to bring them out of the shadows, into the light, and name them before God. Honestly, have a conversation with Him about them and come back before God with confession, with repentance. Repentance just means turning away, turning away from those things and coming back towards God and falling on our faces and saying, God, you alone are worthy of my worship. And I'm sorry that I've somehow drifted into making these other created things gods. They're just not worth it. We've got to be prepared to name and confess our idols before God and then receive his grace afresh and his forgiveness. And he is full of grace. No sooner have we named and confessed our idols than his forgiveness and mercy floods into our lives again. Please don't just stay in this place of self-pity about your idols. But allow yourself to receive God's grace afresh today. You know, I bumped into a whole new form of idolatry the other day that I never even realized existed. I was listening to a podcast, and it was a Christian speaker at a conference. And he was addressing a question that someone had asked earlier in the day. I didn't hear what the question was, but it was obvious enough from his answer. It was obviously a guy had asked a question about the fact that he felt completely unworthy of God. He just felt inadequate, felt like nothing he could do would please God, felt like God was constantly disappointed at him, and nothing he could do was good enough for God. And he'd somehow raised this in the context of this conference. So another speaker got up later in the day and addressed that question, addressed that guy. And what he said really surprised me. He said, you know, honestly, I think that you are in danger of idolatry. Now, I expected him to come in with this nice soft word of encouragement, grace, mercy, let me help you, brother. But it was this almost, almost hard-sounding word, I, I think you're guilty of idolatry. And what he, what he was saying was, You have made your own self-effort into an idol. You've taken your own attempt at being a good person and you're resting on that to save you. And it is completely unable to. And while you think that your good deeds have any chance of bringing you favor and standing with God, you are in fact committing idolatry. Now that broke it wide open for me. Because I can see that in my life. I can see how I do that. And I rely on my goodness or badness for my standing with God and feel a certain way about my relationship with God, often depending on how good or bad I've been. I can see it. And it made me realize, you know what that is? It's idolatry. Now, I can either feel really stink about myself for that because now I'm an idolater as well as all these other bad things that I already was. Or I can find that which I do incredibly freeing because I can put aside my silly idol of self-righteousness and self-effort and see for what it is, this, this thing, my works, that I'm depending on to get me to God and I can cast it aside as an idol and just fall on the mercy and grace of God completely. It just opened my eyes and it put the whole thing in a different perspective that we can make our own self-effort into an idol. Isn't that crazy? Our own attempts at holiness, which in themselves are good things, but we can turn them into an idol. And I would say to you that if you are trusting in your own effort for your standing with God, and if you are feeling bad about yourself because you're not a good enough person and therefore feel like God is displeased with you and loves you less, friends, you are guilty of idolatry. 
And I say that with love, and I say it not to tear you down, but I say it so that you might put aside that silly idol of self-righteousness and cast yourself on the lavish grace of God, which alone can save you. It's the only thing that can. See, there's great freedom on the other side of idolatry, and I hope you can hear my heart in this. There's real freedom when we can put aside whatever the idols are in our lives and find ourselves relying completely on the grace of God. But it's not easy to do, and it's going to be uncomfortable when we commit ourselves to practices that work against the idols that we've built up. Our flesh is going to scream out against it. Our hearts are going to cry out against it because we've just drifted into these patterns over a long period of time. But I would encourage you, do what you need to do to shatter your idols. Rely fully on the grace of God and take to your idols with a sledgehammer. It may mean big decisions. It could mean a life-changing decision like closing your Facebook account. It could come to that. It may not. It may mean cutting back on things. It may mean changing your perspective on things. It may mean changing your priorities, your schedule, your spending, the way you organize your time. It may simply mean changing your mind about something and coming at something with a different and much more healthy and God-honoring perspective. You may need people around you to help you with this to identify perhaps what the things are in your life, to help you identify some ways that you can change the way you're approaching these idols. But don't hold back. Don't hold back. Shatter these idols in your lives and return to God with repentance and with wholehearted commitment. He's the only one. He's the one true living God. He's the only one who is truly worthy of our worship. Let's cast aside our idols. Let's return back to God with all of our heart. As we prepare ourselves this morning to take communion together, I want to uh, play a music video for a few minutes and ask that you just allow the words of the song to search your heart. It's a very powerful song. And it talks about exposing the idols in our lives and the power that they've got over us. It uses the image of clearing the stage. Clear the stage of all the clutter in your life. All the things that are competing with God. You may not be bowing down to a statue, but we're relating to things in ways that compete with God at the very center of our lives. Clear the stage, clear the clutter, and return our hearts to the, towards the God who's truly worthy of our worship. So let's uh, watch and listen to this song together, and then I'll come back up and lead us into communion. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.